come to the reading of God's holy word. Uh, we have two readings before us this morning. Uh, the first comes from Psalm 25, uh, 24, sorry, Psalm 24, and the second is from Hebrews 1. Psalm 24, starting from verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And now for our second reading, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, your, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those 
who are to inherit salvation. The Spirit of God, please be our guide. Let's pray. Gracious God, our most loving Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word to hear your voice. You have given us your spirit to hear your voice and to interpret and understand. And so, Lord, as we consider the wonder and the majesty of your Lord, of our Lord, Jesus Christ came to this world to die for sinners, I pray that you would indeed speak that we would indeed hear, that we would indeed long to be changed, that we might go out into this world and declare your wonderful, majestic name to a people that don't know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Morning, Chapel Street. Morning to our visitors and to Chapel Street online and special hello to the people in America that uh, listen on the podcast. Um, Please, folks, continue to pray for us as a church. We are small in number. We have a wide reach. I think it's over 3,000 people at a last count overseas that listen in, but we're a small number here. So please pray for us to continue to grow in depth in our understanding of Christ and, if God is willing, to grow in number two. Please also continue to pray for Jeff. You know who's unwell. I'm gathering he's probably online, but yes, he is. Thanks, Jeff. Um, and for Dave and Bryony, as their family has tripled inordinately overnight, that's a huge thing. So please pray for them. I am super excited today because we get to start Hebrews, a favorite book of mine. You shouldn't have favorites, I know. It's a favorite book of Heidi's, who some years ago insisted that as a Bible study, we studied it, and we did, and it was great. But I'm really excited uh, to finally get into it. Um, it's probably uh, going to take us a long time to get through the whole book, but I hope it will be encouraging and worth it for us. Um, it's a book that we might need to go quickly at certain points through, and at other points we'll have to go very slowly because it's so deep and so rich. A bit about Hebrews, if you don't know, nobody knows which human being wrote it. There's a lot of contention historically about who that might have been, and some people think it was Paul, and some people think it was one of the other apostles that perhaps hasn't written another uh, letter or uh, gospel in the New Testament. Uh, but the reality is we don't know. It doesn't say so. It doesn't sign itself off uh, by telling us who actually wrote it. But of course, we know that God wrote it. We know that all scripture is inspired by God. It's written by men who are born along by the Holy Spirit to write it down for us. This particular text is written to Jewish Christians. It's written to Christians who are facing a very difficult time in the history of the church, probably in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that specifically. And again, people argue about when it was written. Some people think that it was written before the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70 prophesied by the Lord Jesus himself. Some people think it was written afterwards. I personally, for what it's worth, um, not much of a scholar, but I think looking at what's in the text, especially around the temple, that the perception is that the temple is still around. And so I think it was probably written about AD 60. And that seems to be the common view, so we'll go with that for now. 
And these Christians, these Jewish Christians, are being persecuted. We're all suffering persecution in different ways for our faith. But these Christians were being persecuted terribly. And when people get persecuted, their faith is in contention because that's what they're persecuted for. They're not necessarily persecuted for the color of pants they wear. Right? It's about their faith. It's very serious. And so when that happens, often people's resolving Christ is weakened. And incidentally, the body of Christ, the church, is essential to encourage one another to keep going. We just had that in communion. And that very encouraging to keep on repenting, to keep on loving Christ. But these Jewish Christians were struggling. For some, perhaps, their faith was waning. For others, perhaps, in a small way, not in a grand way, they were falling away from Christ. And Hebrews is about encouraging them to keep on going. At its heart, Hebrews is about asserting or reasserting the central core, the very heart of Christianity, that Jesus Christ is supreme. That he's not just some man who lived and died. He's a man who lived, died, and was raised again because he's God. And he reigns supremely. It's all about the supremacy of Christ. And if you don't know what that word means, it means he's number one. He's above all. He is the name that is above all names. One day everybody shall bow and confess and kneel to. It's fundamentally about the supremacy of Christ. And all the way through Hebrews, we will see that again and again and again. And as some people have described it, it's a book that just says again and again, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's better than the types and the figures. He's better than the law. He's better than the priests. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the kings because he's not an angel. Sons of God in the Old Testament and during this time were sometimes seen as just angels. That's how the Bible describes them. This son of God is different because he is the son of God. He is God, not an angel. He's better. He's better. The second thing that occurs in this text again and again are warnings. Warnings for us. Warnings for these Jewish Christians in the first century. Warnings for Christians lest they drift away from Christ lest they drift away from the voice of Jesus, the word of God. Warnings for people that think they're Christian and not. It's a scary book to read. Would you agree? The last thing that is contained in this book again and again, and there are many things, but these three fundamental things, is an exhortation to continue to persevere, to endure the race that is set before each one of us. And over the next months, years, I don't know how long this will take. I typically only speak once a month, sometimes more. So it could take us 10 years, who knows. Uh, we'll probably consider thousands and thousands of things. 
But I want you to know that the one essential thing we must get out of this text is that Jesus is supreme. He is. We must get his identification right. We must know he is supreme. We must know he is the Son of God. Because recognizing who Jesus really is is key to our salvation, to our sanctification, and it's key to our worship, isn't it? If you don't think he is who he says he is, God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, etc., etc., then you're not going to worship him as that. So I hope that we'll get that. And the, the start of the book works to draw that out of us. I'm hoping that we will indeed understand that. Listen, the word says, and there is salvation in no one else. Acts 4, this is Peter. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. We've got to know that this is the right Jesus. Romans 10, the Apostle Paul says, what does it say? The word's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But if you don't recognize that Jesus is Lord, you're not going to confess him as Lord. You're not going to believe that he's the son of God and that his raising has the most profound consequences for humanity. It's essential to know who he is because, listen, you get the wrong Jesus, you get the wrong God. In fact, you get no God at all. And there are so-called Christian churches that have the wrong Jesus. Maybe think of them. The Mormons are one. The Jehovah's Witnesses are another. They don't worship God because they don't worship Jesus as God, because they don't identify who he really is. And I wonder sometimes, what do we make of Hebrews? <laughs> it's all about getting that right in our lives. And the world, separate to the so-called church, knows of Jesus. It's historically verifiable. But they don't worship him as Jesus because they don't believe who he is. Now, we're going to cover just the first few verses of this text. I did have ambitions to cover more, but it turned into a 12-point sermon, and I can't possibly manage that in the hour and a half that you've allotted me, or less. So I've had to break it into two messages, and so I hope that when we come to the second message in a few weeks, um, I'll remind you of what we did together in this one. So let's look at the text together. That's what matters more than anything. And uh, we'll trip through it. And listen, I want to build this theme. So I'll read the text again and again. So you uh, have it in your mind. I'm hoping it will appear on the screen. Uh, we're only going to be focusing on the bit that's sort of lit up or highlighted in that text this morning. So read along with me, please. From verse 1, Hebrews. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Pause there. 
The God is a God who has always spoken. Speaking is the way that God expresses his character. Think about it for a minute. Words bring meaning, don't they? That's the premise behind language, is that we convey meaning, we convey truth, and God is about doing the same. And I'm sure in the Old Testament we can think very quickly of the first place that God speaks. It's in Jesus creating the world. And God said, well, if you're going to say, you need to use words. And God said, let there be light. And guess what? Out of nowhere, light appeared. That's the power of the word. And so God has spoken forever. He spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke to Noah. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Isaac. He spoke to Jacob. The Psalms are full, as we heard this morning, of God speaking to kings and other sons. He spoke to Moses in the burning bush on Mount Sinai. Again and again and again, God spoke. And we hear in this text that God also spoke through the prophet, prophets of the Old Testament. But now, now he speaks through his son. By his son. That literally means that because Jesus has always spoken, it means that he now speaks to us in bodily form. Many years ago, and I was trying to work out when this was, uh, I worked in China for a while. Uh, and I'm pretty sure it was 2002, so it's a long time ago. And I'll cut the story short because the story isn't the bit that matters, but I met this man whose business card said, messenger to the queen. That's the royal insignia. And I thought, well, what is this very interesting job? Quite, quite interested to know more about it. And apparently there, are this, there is a core, as in C-O-R-P-S, of retired army people, military people of some kind, who serve the queen by conveying diplomatic messages around the world. She sends them out, as it were, to speak her voice, to give her words to countries. And this chap had some work to do in China. An amazing job. Would it be quite different for those countries to receive the queen herself, wouldn't it? For the queen to come in person and give her voice, her words, her authority into whatever situation she needed to speak. And that's kind of what it's like. Jesus, God, has come as a man to do just that, to give his words. And I think in Jesus, God speaks in the clearest possible way, doesn't he? Because it's not just about Jesus' speaking words, but it's about him being word. He is the one bringing the message in person, but he is also the one who is the message in person. I'm God. I'm God and I came here to reclaim the cosmos, so to speak, to die for the sin of the world. He's the one bringing the message in person, but he is the one who is the message 
in person. Now think about it. How did he do it for us now? I mean, Jesus Christ himself in bodily form isn't with us. His spirit is with us. You might say, well, he speaks through his word. And I hope that's true because we are gathering around the word. The word has been speaking to us this morning since the beginning of the service. That's right. But he also speaks to us by what he's done. Has communion spoken to you today? It's a memorial feast that celebrates what he's done. So he speaks to us by what he's done. But mostly, or in addition, I should say, he speaks to us by who he is. The very king. The very God. The true God coming and speaking. Because it's so important not just to know the word of God, not just to know what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, not just to know that he's coming back again, to know who he is. Because it's all. And it's a great place to start a book to a bunch of Jews who are Christians who are being persecuted and who are struggling in their faith. I can think of Timothy, Paul speaking to Timothy. I want to remind you, Timothy, he says, maybe 2 Timothy 2, I can't recall exactly, Jesus Christ, descended of David according to the flesh, was raised again. And even though I'm found in chains like a common criminal, the word of God's never in chains. So important to start with that. And I hope that's an encouragement to them, right? And I hope it's an encouragement to us to come back and say, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him being the son of God. So let's pay attention then as we go through this, because that's the place we start. People spoke in the Old Testament, guys. That's what they're saying to these Jewish Christians. They're, yes, we know that. But did you forget to listen to Jesus? Because now we hear through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What an intro. Many years ago, I had a friend who was really struggling with certain things and they became very um, stressed and physically shaking. And, uh, very, very distressed. And I didn't know what to say to them. They were a Christian and I, I didn't, you know, what do you say when someone's in that situation. But in the end, all I could think of to do was to hold them in my arms quite tightly and say, Jesus is the Son of God. And he died for you. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day. It seemed to have a powerful effect. And we need to be that. We need to be that to other people, but mostly to one another and to ourselves. All right, well, let's get through. I've got three points to go through. I did have eight, as I said earlier. I think I had 12 initially. And we're just going to cover off three. Now we know that the book starts by reasserting who Jesus is, the Son of God. We want to, um, and, and that he speaks now, we want to dwell on a few other things. So point number one, then, is Jesus is the Son and the heir of all things. Verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. I want us to know straight away that what he is saying by asserting that Jesus is the Son is that he is God. 
And Jesus is called the son of many things in the Bible. There are plenty of titles for Jesus. One is that he is the son of Adam, Adam, man. He is the son of man. You heard that phrase in the Bible? Ezekiel talks about it. Talks about it. Daniel talks about it. He is the son of man. In other words, he is a real man. And like Adam, the first Adam, and this is coming out of Romans, isn't it? He is pure and perfect, but he doesn't sin like Adam. It also says that Jesus is the son of Israel. It simply means that he's a genuine Jew, born of the tribe of Judah. His genealogy is Israeli. He's an Israelite. It's real. He's a son of Israel. You might say if you come from Scotland, uh, you're a son of Scotland for what it's worth. It also says in the word that he is the son of David. In fact, people cry out that wonderful title for Jesus. The blind people, son of David, have mercy on me. Right? The gospels, son of David, they can't even see Jesus, they're blind. Have mercy on me. And somehow they're able, by God's grace, to see literally and spiritually who Jesus really is. And it just means he's the king. He's of the line of David because he's come through the line of Judah, down through Jesse, down through David, all the way, line of the tribe of Judah, as the word says. But here he's also saying that he's the son of God. Well, how do I know that? because it says he's the heir of all things. Sons of God that are angels don't inherit all things. Only God inherits all things. The Bible says, first Colossians, wouldn't that be nice if there was a second one? Colossians 1, and I don't want to steal any thunder from the guys that are going to be preaching or are preaching in Colossians. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The Son of God is the very image of the invisible God. Before Jesus, you couldn't see God. He's his spirit. He's in a cloud. That's the closest that Moses got to seeing him and asked to see his glory, but still couldn't see him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2, in Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. The sun and the air. And this picture of the air is there in the Old Testament. It's there actually in the very beginning. But the reference here is around Psalm 2. As for me, says God, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yeah, it's a decree. Not a nice idea, it's a decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Where's the sonship? Where's the heirship? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. The son, the real son, is the one who inherits, isn't it? We know that. The son is the one who inherits. And God becomes a man to inherit what belongs to him. 
Colossians goes on to say that through Jesus Christ, God was reconciling to himself all things. That's the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, whether on earth or in heaven. Why? Because he's the son. Because he's the heir. That's point number one. Jesus is the son and heir of all things. Point number two. Jesus is the creator of the world. Verse two again. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. It's almost like a side effect. Oh, also to remember to add that Jesus is the one who created the world. I remember becoming a Christian and thinking, no, no, uh, God the Father created the world. Jesus just showed up later on, popped into history and did this salvific work on the cross, atoning for the sins of the world. But actually Jesus is the one who is the creator. Apostle John makes that so clear. It's sort of bulletproof, the language in the Greek of John 1. Listen, we know this so well. In the beginning was the, interestingly, word. We know from verse 14, he's referring specifically to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word, incidentally, was with God. And incidentally, the word was God. It wasn't just with him, he was God. So just to clarify, we're talking about Jesus. We're saying that he was there in the beginning, that he was with God, and he was God. And he says, he was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him. And just to really seal the deal, the apostle says, nothing that's being made has been made without him. See, there is one creator, and that creator made all things, even us. you believe that? You're created by God. You're not an accident or some evolutionary process. You're created by God. Colossians 1.16, for by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and earth. Things visible and things invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for, for him. Jesus created the cosmos for himself. That's why he's going to inherit it. He made it good, didn't he? And humankind rebelled against him and it became something less than good, although it still declares the glory of God. But he's going to get it back. He's going to take it back. He's going to make it new. Listen, don't see Jesus as some small kind of part in the process, like I said, that just pops in in human history. He's the creator. The Lord God Almighty who creates the world. This is this man, Jesus. It's really important because for some of those so-called Christian religions that don't really identify Jesus correctly, it means that if Jesus isn't the creator, then somehow he's being created. And if you're the creator, you can't create yourself. And if you're a creature as part of creation, you can't be the one who created because you're the result of the creation. Does that make sense? I'd rather confuse you with that. 
So it's so important to see him as creator. Do you worship Jesus as creator? You should. Amen. So point one, Jesus is the son and the heir of all things. Point two, Jesus is the creator of the world. And point three, it should be obvious, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, we probably should do the next part of the verse, but we don't have time. So that's what we'll do uh, next time. It says in my notes here, glory of God, explain. That's quite difficult to do. Um, and it should be. Right? Talking about the glory of God. But what I want to say to help us understand is understanding what the glory of God is, is understanding something of the character of God, if you will, his nature. And at the fundamental center of the character of God is his holiness. And in the Bible, glory and holiness go together. In Isaiah 6, that passage where the prophet is in the temple and God visits in the temple in a cloud, not in bodily form. And the temple quakes. And the, the prophet says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. He recognizes that in the presence of God, he's just a sinner. There's what we call the trihagion. The Greek word hagion means holy. The Greek word tri means three. Well done. <laughs> Still awake. Three holies. You know that one? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy is God. You know what it says next? The whole earth is full of his glory. Glory equates to exposing something, showing something, revealing something, manifesting something of the holiness of God. One person said, this is John Piper, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. I love that. The manifest beauty of his holiness. That's the glory of God. It is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. glory of God. He radiates this manifestation of the holiness of God. Just think of that. Just reflect on that. What is he like? What is his character like? What is his obedience like? What is his love like? Radiance literally means from the Greek to reflect. What it means to reflect Jesus is the only one, really, isn't he, who displays the attributes of God perfectly. He radiates his holiness to a lost and sinful generation. He radiates his righteousness to a people that are dead in their transgressions and sins. He radiates his justice to a world that ironically wants injustice. He radiates his wrath to a world that demands to be let off the hook. 
He radiates his mercy to a world that's merciless. He radiates his peace, reconciliation to a world that is fighting. And he radiates his grace to a world who hates him. That's the radiance of the glory of God. He radiates grace. He radiates truth. Think back to John. Remember, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, etc., etc. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we, says John, we've seen his glory. You know what the glory is that he says he's seen? The glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. There it is. Full of grace. the radiance of the glory of God because he radiates God's holiness supremely. At what point, tell me, does Jesus sin? He doesn't. He does this by what he says. He does this by what he does. And he does this by who he is, the son and the heir and the creator. What a great way to start a letter, isn't it? Amazing way to start a letter. As we close, just a bit of application for us, because this letter is for us, not just for these struggling Jewish Christians in the first century. I'd like to kind of say to you, in a way, spend the day meditating on it. <laughs> That's probably the best thing, in a way. But today's the Lord's Day. We're all busy. Some of you are retired, so you're busier than ever. Spend some time today just reflecting. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the heir. He's the creator. He's the Hebrews. The exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then comes the gospel, which we'll get to. Just reflect on that. Remind yourself. It's so important to know this stuff. It's so important to catch the significance of it. You might say, well, what is the significance, Sam? Many years ago, in the Church of Scotland in Pencatland, where Sandy and I were married, 1992, three, two, one of those years, two, um, we were treated to a man called Bob Yule preaching one Christmas Sunday. And uh, he was a fantastic preacher, a man of real brimstone and fire. And uh, he got up on, on Christmas Sunday. He was just a visiting preacher. He wasn't the regular preacher there. And he started his message by saying this. Jesus is the most dangerous man in all of human history. And he still is. Now, that kind of frightened me when I heard that. He's the da most dangerous man. It's kind of a, ooh, do we use that kind of language about Jesus? But you know what? Some truth in that, isn't there? He's got the keys to heaven and the keys to hell. He's the judge. The one who is judged is the judge. That's the worst thing conceivable, right? The one who is judged for you is the one who's going to judge you. Scary. He is terrifying in that regard. Sin is real. It's not a joke. There's no jokes in the Bible. There's a little bit of lighter stuff i know and sometimes people do argue that lord 
maybe kind of derides, but obviously he doesn't sin. But sin is real. It does offend God. It has offended God. There's no one in the cosmos that hasn't offended a holy God. Hell is real. It's eternally real. Can I put it that way? No joke. And each man and woman in the cosmos will do business with this sun, with this air, with this creator who radiates the glory of God. So, friends, online here, listening on a podcast, I want to encourage you to start by recognizing that Jesus is God. The one who speaks in person in our time today through his word, through his spirit, by his spirit, is God. He is the heir. He is the creator. Make sure we get that right because the significance of that is vital. There's no other name. No, there is Buddha, Putin, anyone in between. They're not going to save us. There's no other name but Jesus under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. Ultimately, where do we see his glory, his sonship? It's on the cross until he returns. It's on the cross, dying for the world that he created, for the world that is his possession that he will take. This is the air. So the first thing there is identifying Christ is properly. Worship him properly because he is the son of God. Because your salvation depends on that. We could spend time talking about how that also drives sanctification. Learning to fight for the holiness of God. Learning to fight against oneself and sin. But the one I want to just focus in on as we finish is that we've got to identify who he really is so that we know what right worship is of him. I'm not talking about just coming in on a Sunday morning and singing praises and praying and listening to his word, remembering him through communion talking about our lives when we're not at church <laughs> as well as being here aren't we supposed to sacrifice our lives for him take up your cross deny yourself come after me lose your life you gain your life can't quite get the Romans 12 put into my mind um, but that idea of Dying to self, being a wholly acceptable, there it is, act of worship to God. And if you do not know that Jesus is your judge, if you do not know that he is the son of God, the creator of the universe, the heir of all things, then how is your worship going to be on track? So I remind you of that this morning. I want you to remind me of it. Because I don't walk any better than you. Maybe now and again, but other times you walk better than me. We need to encourage one another. And that's what the letter is doing to these Hebrews. 
You need him for salvation. You need him for right worship. You need him to walk well. You need him to not fall away, to not stray from him. You need him to come back. He calls you to come back, to repent, to come back to the, the communion, to come back to Christ. And so, how are you doing? How are you doing in remembering who he is? He really is. Are you worshipping him? For who he really is? Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You can see he's the radiance of the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, again, we just come before you and thank you for the power of your word, for the truth and the grace that comes from Jesus Christ, for the glory that we um, perhaps begin to see or touch or experience, to know your holiness, your perfection, your majesty. Lord, again, we say as a body who claims Christ, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness. We acknowledge that you're creator. We acknowledge that you're the son of God in the air. And you have reconciled or will reconcile all things to yourself because you are God and you have paid the price for our sin. And so again, we say thank you. And all God's people said, Amen.